Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, November 3rd, 2021. I'm John Bodhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Wow. Wow. Uh, this is a wow moment. This is a moment at which the uh, ship of state and American politics, uh, as happens very rarely, uh, this is a we are we are in a different era, political era today than we were yesterday. Um, that just the the size of the Republican the shifts away from Democrats to Republicans in states as various as Virginia, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, um, a couple of other places. It's very striking, uh, astoundingly striking. And I think, win or lose, oddly enough, the New Jersey result is by far the most striking. Uh, Cittarelli, the Republican, is probably not going to end up as governor. Uh, any but any way you slice this, the incumbent governor, Phil Murphy, won four years ago by a margin of sixteen points, and Biden, Joe Biden, won the state by sixteen points, and this is a jump ball election. That is a sixteen point shift, not only from the Biden election, but from Murphy's first election. Sixteen points. Go down to Virginia. We have a shift toward the uh, Republicans of twelve and a half points. I think once once all the counting is done, Glenn Youngkin will win by like two and a half. Biden won the state by ten. Ralph Northam won the state in twenty seventeen by nine. It is staggering. You don't see this. It's one thing to win closely you know elections in in which in which the partisan lean of the state is you know four points five points one way or the other and there's a shift this is something else noah it wasn't about money democrats were rolling in cash and the republicans were largely outspent it wasn't about candidate quality many of these guys are incumbents well-known backed by enthusiastic democratic support it wasn't about trump his presence or absence in the national debate was irrelevant. Uh, it was about the national environment. It was a referendum on the first 10 months of democratic governments, and it was a resounding no. Virginia's governor, we talked about New Jersey races in the assembly. There are some very close races. The Senate president, Steve Sweeney is hanging by a thread against his opponent who spent a grand total of $153 on the campaign. This this is Pennsylvania an judicial Steve races. Sweeney, Steve Sweeney is the most powerful person in New Jersey politics by has a, been for, for by, a, a by a by leagues by leagues more powerful than the governor uh, the political constitution of the state for him to you know even even to win by a hair against somebody who was just sitting there as a placeholder on the ballot astonishing. The state is not a, not a uniform swing. I'm sorry, briefly. It was a 16-point swing statewide. Um, but places like Passaic County swung by over 20 points. And Passaic County doesn't go Republican very often. <laughs> Extremely rare. Um, 
in Pennsylvania, judicial races uh, all went Republican. In New York City, city council Republicans picked up seats. Uh, the Buffalo mayor's race is bizarre. People turned out in droves just not to vote for a socialist. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, there were a couple of referendums in New York and Minnesota. One of them was to reimagine police, which went down in flames in Long Island. There was a wipeout. Uh, it was across the board, a Republican, uh, series of Republican victories or moral victories. I mean, even if, if New Jersey ends up not going Republican against a guy with no name recognition who nobody even knew, I couldn't even pronounce his name. I live here. I don't know the guy. Um, it was a resounding vote of no confidence in democratic governments. You can't read these results any other way, honestly. Two two little data points to what to add to what Noah's saying is that both Edward Durr, the person who might unseat the New Jersey State Senate uh, guy, is a truck driver who didn't campaign at all. He just has an R after his name. And similarly in Buffalo, where the write-in candidate is the one who is getting the vote. So these candidates weren't even actively pursuing office. They are just simply an alternative to the crazy in the minds of a lot of voters in those areas. Right. Republicans won by default. Okay. Let's talk for two seconds about the uh, Twin Cities and the uh, rejection of the idea of reimagining the police department, defunding the, closing the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, here's what struck me about this, which lost 58-42. 42 still seems to me to be a lot, but the idea was you would, you would end it and you would start this new thing, right? Here's, here's what strikes me, and it, this also connects to the Uh, India Walton, the loss of the Democratic candidate on the Democratic line in Buffalo to the write-in candidate who was the sitting mayor, who wasn't, you couldn't vote for him on the ballot. You had to write in his name, and he won in a landslide because India Walton, the Democratic Socialist candidate, is a crazy person. Here's what strikes me about what happened in the Twin Cities. What they wanted to do was reconstitute the police department as something they called either the department public safety, right? The public department safety. of yeah, public, public safety, safety, like it's a college or the committee <laughs> of right, no wait, or the committee on or the uh, department of public safety. I the Jacobins reign of terror. In 1792-1793, as led by Robespierre, the Jacobin regime was called the Committee on Public Safety. This is a coincidence because even psychotic socialist goons in the Twin Cities wouldn't make this mistake consciously, I don't think. But the simple fact that, that Minneapolitans rejected the Jacobin proposal to close the police department so that their mobs could run wild and hang people in the streets, uh, connecting with what happened in Buffalo, we have the we have the rejection of the Democratic Party, and we also have the rejection in of left wing, consciously left wing nostrums and fashionable efforts in in buffalo and in minneapolis so it was a thermidorian reaction (laughs) well the the in minneapolis in particular the only thing you need to know about that vote on defunding the police is that between 2019 and 2020 
the Twin Cities homicide rate increased by 71%. And that is what voters went to the polls and decided on. Public safety to them means not getting murdered. And the the alternative to murder is an active police force that that is getting violent criminals off the streets and, you know, successfully investigating homicides that do occur. The Public Safety Committee was talking about social workers and hugs and the kind of stuff that sounds really great on paper, but to people living in a city where murder rates have skyrocketed, just doesn't, that doesn't work. So I I just want to paraphrase myself briefly. (laughs) Uh, When I wrote uh, last year, uh, yes, this is a revolution, I said, if the revolution is going to be put down, uh, it's not going to happen in the streets. It will happen when Americans who were sympathetic to the revolution, though not at its core, um, realized that they that life is too good here to tear all to tear it all down. Um, I think we all and should, it's happening. I think we all should take a, a little victory lap. No one else is going to do it for us, but we were right that the simplest explanation was the correct explanation. That what you expected to happen actually happened. That the country isn't spinning out of control and centrifugal forces sending this country into oblivion. That the reaction that you expected from voters to materialize, that we expected to materialize, materialized. Well, well the, I, I, the reaction has also started to uh, materialize on among the elite on the left, which is that, you know, what, trending on Twitter, as John uh, texted us right before we started, is the phrase white supremacy. And you saw this pop out everywhere, particularly in discussions of when it became clear that Youngkin was going to win in Virginia. It was, by the way, he also, the lieutenant governor is an African-American woman and the attorney general who won in Virginia is Hispanic. So, but and, it's and white by supremacy. by the way, yes, if you want to look at white supremacy as a factor in the Virginia results this year, here is how you would do that. Uh, Glenn Youngkin got uh, 1.67 million votes as of you know as 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 of this telling. Winsome Sears, the lieutenant governor, got 1.672, uh, whereas Youngkin got 1.677, and the uh, attorney general Jason Miaris got 1.66. So, in terms of white supremacy, you can say that a grand total of 10,000 people at most uh, would not vote for uh, Jason Miaris and 4,000 wouldn't vote for Winsome Sears uh, in a state in which uh, it appears 3.3 million people voted. So I think you can say that that is, a, that is uh, you know, that's where you can say, look, I'll vote for Yunkin, but I'm not voting for that black woman. 4,000 people may have said that in a state of 1.6, in a state in which 3.2 million people voted. Uh, That's your factoid to disabuse people of this notion. But of course, Christine, you have a ready explanation for why that, I think, sensible rejoinder will not be accepted by... No, I mean, it's similar to what we saw when when uh, uh, Hispanics were voting for Trump in 2020. The, the explanation of the elite is very clear. It's, well, haven't you seen the movie Django? Black people can can adopt whiteness. They can internalize whiteness. They can participate in whiteness. So we know that that happens. So this is yet another example. So they're basically already calling the lieutenant governor of Virginia, um, someone who has, you know, adopted whiteness to pursue professional success only because there's an R after her name. If there was a D after her name, this would be an entirely different story. And I think that's actually part of this broader election story. 
this has been the message that's been hammered home, particularly by the mainstream media, but by a lot of our technocratic elite. This idea that this is a horribly racist, backward country and nobody can get ahead and we need to see everything through the prism of race. When you see the victories of, of uh, people like that, you, you, they can't comprehend it. So they have to go to their priors, which is to say, well, it's still white supremacy. But the average person looks at this and says, is it really? I mean, they I think they think they reason it out more like you do, John, and say, well, really, how many people wouldn't have voted for this, this woman because she happened to be black? Well, it's not just that. I mean, uh, when when issues are being raised and the answer is shut up, uh, even raising these concerns brands you as a racist um you can twist certain types of people into knots with that tactic but you can't do it with everybody you can't say somebody who says i I don't know look i i don't want my kids being taught that uh you know um all black people are victims and that white people are oppressors i i really i don't like that that first of all, it doesn't it doesn't strike me that it conforms with the truth, and second of all, it's not the lesson that I want them to learn about how the the country that they live in. And people say that's evil, and we are going to teach them this, whether you like it or not. And then they go, "No, you're not. No, I'm sorry. Like, no, that is not right." And as I say, you can intimidate people at the workplace. Because they get a paycheck from you if you have a diversity committee that's going to you know, come down on their heads. And you can intimidate people in social conversations because they, you know, because they don't necessarily have the uh, eloquent ability to argue the point that is so self-evident to them. But you can't intimidate them in the privacy of the ballot box. You cannot intimidate them in the privacy of the ballot box. And when they see other people going to school board meetings and rallying in different ways and all of that, who are doing things that they they themselves don't feel comfortable doing or wouldn't do, they're not activists or something like that, and then see them being dragged out by cops or being called domestic terrorists or whatever, they can express their support in the most powerful possible way, which isn't necessarily to be an activist on the line, but to go into the voting booth and basically say, I'm voting against these guys. I, I'm not voting for Yunkin. I'm voting against these guys. And I think when you look at this uniform shift to the right, in Virginia, among every group, every ethnic group, every age group, every socioeconomic group, what you are seeing in a uniform shift of this sort is a rejection of the status quo, period, end of discussion. And the status quo is Ralph Northam, the governor, the Fairfax Loudoun County public school system shutting down and shutting down parents and Joe Biden and the Democrats who control the presidency in both houses of Congress. Now, that's where we start moving into the the question of how is New Jersey different? And here's where I'm going to posit this theory and ask you guys to respond to it. This is the first and not the last of the COVID elections, by which 
when you look at the Virginia exit polls, there are no New Jersey exit polls, but you look at the, they say that COVID was the third issue below education and the economy. But it's not. Because the education and the economy are COVID issues. The condition of the economy, the optimism of the American people about the economy is an issue that relates directly to what happened over the last two years and what it appears may happen going forward. And it is clear uh, that the um, even bipartisan COVID relief efforts made in Washington have not sated the American people's sense that something was done to them by COVID that politicians need to pay for. Maybe it's not fair. Who knows? Education is obviously a COVID issue because the schools were closed for a year. If the schools hadn't been closed for a year, Yunkin would not be governor. People are talking about, it is very convenient to say this is all about critical race theory. It's not about critical race theory. It is about the closure of schools in Virginia, which had draconian measures. And now that's where we go to New Jersey. We don't have an issue set in New Jersey. We're not really going to know what happened in New Jersey. New Jersey, Governor Murphy's stewardship of the coronavirus, people, liberals, the liberal bubble in in the tri-state area claimed that Murphy was popular because of what happened with COVID, and he just lost 16 points off his vote total. He is not popular because of COVID. He is unpopular because of COVID. Yeah, you can't go with the polls. The polls don't tell you anything because the polls suggested that none of this would happen or also, even remotely last, also approach the polls, what would happen. Yeah, also the polls showing that Murphy was popular because of COVID are right. old. No. And, no? No, we're talking about Monmouth University polls. No. Oh, sorry. Murphy won every issue set. Remember how much this drove me insane? Yes. The issue set was Murphy's. The the race was Murphy's by a 10-point margin. And then Monmouth is a really great poll. And all of they was it was just confirming what everybody else knew. However, Joe Biden was running 10 points behind him. And that made no sense. This guy didn't have a pro, a, a a personality and a platform that would make him that would allow him to run that far ahead of the national party. He had to be tethered to the national party somehow. And he was. Turns out he was. He couldn't run ahead of the national party. And the issue set is Democrats don't care about what's happening to your wallets. Democrats are making it worse. And yes, COVID is a part of that. Education is a part of it. But it's all bundled into this idea that Democrats are hopelessly out of touch, only talking to their base, and just focused on these progressive priorities that no one else cares about. But that's where we have to go back to COVID. Yes, yes. The it's all part of COVID. The political I'm, fact of the last two years is the COVID pandemic. There is a rejection, a wholesale rejection of the Democratic Party. Remember, Donald Trump was president during the first eight, uh, first 10 months of the pandemic. They could still blame Donald Trump for the pandemic. That is not what happened here. What they what don't blame here, Donald yes. Trump for are the shifting goalposts. Right. I wrote about this yesterday. Yes. There was a giant COVID milestone, vaccination milestone that happened this week that literally no one cares about. Mm-hmm. 70% of the public, adults over 18, are now partially vaccinated. Or 80% are partially vaccinated, 70% are fully vaccinated. That was supposed to mean something a couple of months ago. Right. It was supposed to be the point at which we hit an off-ramp. Now no one talks about off-ramps. We've just yeah, settled they're into going this to now. Well, yeah, they better. Well, that's they, what I'm saying. Like, out, the, the question is, are people going to look at this? Liberals are going to say white supremacy. And conservatives are, are going to say a bunch of other things. And I am telling you right now, 
that if Joe Biden isn't an idiot, and he is an idiot, and if Ron Klain isn't an idiot, and I now believe Ron Klain to be an idiot, and we can talk about some more about Ron Klain and the insane politics of the last month, that bid fair to, if you if you pull back, they represent a kind of political chaos that we thought was endemic and exclusive to the Trump presidency. Chaos, policies, things going out, you know, confusion on Capitol Hill about what the president wants or he doesn't want and all of this. It is exactly the same story as 2017 and 2018 uh, with Trump. Exactly the same story and the same kind of result in the sense that voters and the American people go, I, this is making me uncomfortable. Like, what the hell is going on there? Like, what the hell are you doing, right? Okay, if they are not idiots, and I think they're idiots, they are going to say we have to make the American people feel better about the present and the future or we are dead in the water. And the only way to do that is to create the off-ramp from the, from the virus. And that means shutting Fauci up. It means firing Rochelle Walensky. It means saying, I am the president. We hit that 70% goal. We are 50% down in, in cases from the Delta variant. We are resetting the rules by which the CDC and, and, and the public health professionals are, continu- are continuing to control American lives. But let me ask you, are they going to do that? No, no, no. I'm telling you, what they're going to continue to do is design their Versailles Hall of Mirrors with all their progressive stuff and, you know, tweak a mirror here and a mirror there. Meanwhile, all the peasants are pissed off and wondering why bread costs so much. And they are going to, I'm telling you, they might they might come to some deal with, you know, Biff versus BBB, whatever. That doesn't matter. They are not going to take the off-ramp for COVID. They can't do it. They psychologically can't do it. Let, let me, it's let me it's just, easy, let me, the easiest yeah. thing to do would be to kill BBB. They can do that easy. Right. There's no, but, they can't end the psychological orientation that has created permanent COVID. Okay, but let's go back to the permanent COVID thing. Just Everything is COVID. The supply chain crisis is COVID. It was introduced by COVID. It was caused by COVID. It has long tail effects that mean that talking about COVID without talking about the negativity in the American economy about the right track and whether we're on the right track isn't about COVID. This is all about COVID. COVID is arguably a bigger and more earth-shaking moment for this country than 9-11 or the financial meltdown. And once again, as was true of the financial meltdown, the political class seems absolutely blind, absolutely blind to the consequences of not engaging with the co- of with the results of the of, of COVID, the way they were blind to dealing with the results of the financial meltdown or dealing with it by saying, oh look, here's a lot of money from Washington. Here, let, we're going to throw you a trillion dollars uh, in relief. It's recovery summer. Or they're going to say, here, here's money for from unemployment. Uh, and, you know, you don't have to pay your rent and all that. Like, that's actually going to solve the day-to-day lifestyle issues that are raised by the continuing domination of our economy and our life, in part by by the response to COVID. And it is... They don't shift gears. But that's very socially undesirable to say. It's it's hard to make that case against the pandemic because it's a health, public health emergency. But I just made it. And you'll be emotionally blackmailed. Who's going to emotionally blackmail you? Now, right now, if Biden came out and said, you know, yay, we're, we beat COVID or something like that, what, are Democrats going to go and attack him? 
I mean, I don't know. You know, there, there's like some, you know, Amanda Mull of the Atlantic will go out and attack him. Or, you know, Leanna Wen of the Washington Post will attack him. They're scared out of their wits now. They are terrified. And they may think that the answer is to talk about white supremacy. But any sane and rational person is going to say, let's just hand more races to the Republicans over the next 12 months. But they're doubling down on this message. But their public health bureaucracy, he has put into place within HHS, within CDC, people who are absolutely committed to keeping this going for a very long time. So it's not he doesn't actually need other Democrats to criticize him. Trying to stop that slow moving Leviathan is going to be the challenge. They are they are not looking at this in the same way that the public is or even the politicians are. Yeah. Remember how this unfolded when the CDC said no more masks. The public health apparatus went rogue. They went on television and they attacked the CDC. Members of the administration were all all over the TV, all over cable news saying this is irresponsible. This is reckless. We need to go backwards. And they, from without that public pressure ended up forcing the CDC to, to back off. It's pretty reasonable uh, recommendations at the time. So I don't, I don't, you have to conclude that the public health apparatus isn't responsive to the executive branch anymore. They're, they're their own, they're their own institution now. Yeah, but, no, even, they, yeah, sorry, but, uh, but, but even the executive branch, I don't think they're at ever going to get the message that this was related to COVID. I don't, I don't, th- I don't, I think as far as they're concerned, COVID is just, look, we, we, we're doing what we can on COVID. And, and if, and if you have a problem with that, well, you're just fringy and crazy. This, this, they're they're going to take this more as a rejection of sort of the uh, progressive social agenda, and there they still won't be responsive because they can't possibly conceive of stopping telling Americans what to care about. Look, in 2012, when Obama ran in 2012, imagine that it was not Mitt Romney who was the who was the presidential candidate. Now, granted, the 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 other candidates were not sort of conceivable candidates in the end after, after you know, how, a year of running, right? But Romney couldn't make the financial meltdown and the Obama administration response to the meltdown or the Obama administration response to health care in Obamacare because of his own personal history, right? As a support, as a creator of Romney care, number one, and number two, as a Wall Street buccaneer, you know, uh, closing fat, whatever, you know, uh, Bain buying companies and shutting them down and doing all that stuff. He didn't have a good economic message. He didn't have a comfortable message. The Republican Party is poised to make Corona and the response to the coronavirus a key element of its messaging over the next two years. Ron DeSantis does not look at the attacks on him and say, I should stop doing this. That is not what's going on, despite what you may think if you read Twitter. Ron DeSantis is doubling down on the idea that local officials do not have the right to raise the whip hand to citizens and ordinary people when it comes to their personal behavior in the midst of the pandemic. That is his game. That is his line. That is where he is. He is the governor of the fourth largest state in the country, or the third largest state in the country, actually, I believe, and, uh, and, and popular from what one can tell. Uh, and we're going to have a referendum on his conduct in office next year. That race will be about Corona. Val Demings will run against him on Corona 
and then we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, you know, and this whole question of the you know the economy and its integration uh, with social issues and 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 our and our daily lives and the way we conduct ourselves is the topic of our friend David Bonson's new book. There's no free lunch. Two hundred and fifty economic truths. Uh, You've heard us talking for months about the Bonson Group, his multi-billion dollar wealth advisory firm, puts out Dividend Cafe and the DCToday.com. Well, in his new book, There's No Free Lunch, uh, he provides a sort of daily economic devotional, pithy commentary, 250 economic principles and quotations from famous economists and thinkers that draw the reader into a deeper understanding of the foundational beliefs and applications to free enterprise. You don't have to be a PhD economist to understand this. The book is written for those who instinctively favor a free market system but want to understand why better. The book provides a faith-based worldview defense of free enterprise and does so with 250 single-page entries that will help you reflect, discern, and understand. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths from our friend David Bonson of the Bonson Group, available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all good bookstores everywhere. Um, so let's talk about the, uh, liberal tears. What do we think? Uh, are we enjoying it? Are we enjoying watching the white supremacy line? Are we enjoying seeing, uh, people say that, you know, the, the, the only reason that a state that went for Biden for 10 points now goes for, uh, Glenn Youngkin, uh, by two points, uh, is that uh, it was it, it it wasn't racist last year, but it's racist this year. Or are I we mean, not enjoying it? I'm I'm enjoying it. A, a, a cornered animal is a scary thing, and Democrats are going to behave irrationally after this because they don't understand what happened and they don't want to understand what happened, so they're going to act out. Um, but how could you not? How could you not enjoy a seismic? organic rejection of what we've witnessed over the last 10 months. Well, and I think they'll they'll also, it's interesting to me to see how the knee-jerk reaction last night among the sort of mainstream media was to focus on the critical race theory aspect, when in fact, that was just one of several powerful issues driving parents and other voters to the polls, because it was the school shutdowns, it was the power of the teachers' unions, it was, and, and added to that the curricula stuff, which for a very long time, the liberal elite, including the media, and including well into late last night on, on NBC and other networks, were saying critical race theory, which doesn't exist, or which isn't being taught. Of course, that lie now has to, is, is fully exposed. So I'm happy that that lie is exposed. The media now has to actually look at what is in this, these curricular changes that angered parents and be honest about it. Will they? Probably not all of them, but it has shifted that conversation, which is a good thing because that's a conversation regular Americans have been having for a couple of years now. Okay, let's talk about regular Americans and schooling because uh, there the uh, am I taking crazy pills thing hit me yesterday listening to this conversation about how there is no critical race theory isn't being taught and what's wrong with teaching kids about race (laughs) and America's racial history. Every single one of those people saying this has been educated in the United States over the last 50 years. Every one of us, I'm 60 years old. Every one of us learned that Thomas Jefferson had slaves, that there was this massive conundrum in the constitution that that promised that said that everyone was free, but that other people were were three fifths of other people. 
and that the and that the country had this stain, this original stain that had to be extirpated by the Civil War. I learned that in the 1970s. Everybody learned it in the 1970s. People haven't been reading novels by African American authors in some sense, you know, disproportionate numbers uh, in schools for the last 40 years. Everyone has been through this. Do these people actually think that the American people are going to buy this nonsense and crap about how only now are kids learning about the evil of ra- of um, of racism and America's racist past? Well, am I ba- take am I taking crazy pills? No, the bait that's what last night exposed is the bait and switch that's been played on that issue for far too long because anytime someone says seeing teaching kids in a, a superstructure to see everything through the prism of race that's what parents rejected. When you say we don't like this and they went to school board meetings and said we don't like this that you're teaching kids to see this everything through the prism of race and you're downplaying excellence and meritocracy. The response was you don't want us to teach your kids about slavery or you don't even know what you're talking about. You don't know what critical race theory is. Both of those responses led to the absolute shellacking that they received in the polls last night. I, I think what connects the the extent to which this was a uh, COVID election and and the extent to which it was a rejection of the progressive agenda is this response from Democrats on both issues, which is, what you're complaining about isn't happening. Um, not not only are we not gonna are we not gonna negotiate about it, and you know maybe you know give a little here and be responsive in in some ways. It's not even happening. And That's and and people obviously Americans cannot tolerate that. Yeah, it's not just the gaslighting, but when they actually do deign to explain themselves, they do so in extremely complicated theoretical ways that you have to have a PhD to decipher. The easy situation is Republicans. Republicans are in a very enviable position of having only to explain their position in a single sentence. Yes, obviously racism was bad. We know that. We don't want a revision to the social compact. We don't want brainwashing in schools. Easy. Yes. And we spend trillions and trillions of dollars, the currency inflates. Easy. Yes, this truncated, atomized existence because of COVID is suboptimal and not justified by the health statistics. Easy. You don't have to explain more than that. Right. And it's intuitively understood. I got two other things for you. Number one, um, Virginia is a state that has 127,000 active duty members of the military living in it. It is Next to California, which is three times the size of Virginia, uh, it is the second it is the state with the second largest military population. You think maybe Afghanistan played a role in the results? You think maybe the uh, southern part of the state where you saw this overwhelmingly larger turnout uh, among Republicans or Republican voters than you saw for Trump in 2020 in these counties that went for Trump by large numbers? You think to some extent that wasn't driven by um, active duty members of the military and their families? I don't know. We'll have to see if somebody does a study of this. But uh, that's one direct Afghanistan problem. The other problem, of course, is that, as Noah has pointed out repeatedly, it is the moment that Afghanistan turns to ash that Biden's polls take their vertiginous dive down 
from which they have not recovered. A 10-point drop, right, on a 50-point base. That means he lost 20% of his support because of Afghanistan. And it hasn't come back. And again, this is a sotto voce issue. And I don't think that it necessarily will carry on into the future unless uh, the horrible stuff that, that also that Noah has been, you know, prophesying about whether or not we may end up having to re-engage there because of terrorist actions taken against us in the next year or two. But it goes to the whole question of Biden's foreign policy fecklessness and whether or not people are going to say, why is he talking about, you know, I don't know, uh, cars and clean energy initiatives when we're paying $4, uh, $5 uh, a tank of gas and uh, and we are like in a declining position in the Middle East to help, Again, you know, easy. We don't Americans yeah. don't like to lose a war and don't like to be humiliated abroad yeah. and surrender to the Taliban. It's not hard to understand. And this then ties to the other aspect of critical race theory, the 1619 project and everything that in sotto voce terms, again, might connect Virginia to New Jersey and other places. Americans don't hate this country. These people hate this country. They say it was born in sin. They say it is a doer of evil. They say that our wars, that our engagements in the world over the last 20 years were a net evil. They trashed the United States and they are getting their hats handed to them in New York State, in, in, you know, in New Jersey, in Virginia, uh, you know, which are the only real sort of vivid examples that we have. Let me give you a piece of advice. Don't crap, don't shit all over the United States of America if you want to win elections in the United States of America. Americans love America. But there's, can I also add to that another little data point, which I think, again, we talked about it a lot and it was on our radar screen as conservatives, but I think to, to the liberal mainstream establishment was just that, well, of course we'll do this. It's the right thing to do. The renaming of schools by school boards when they couldn't figure out how to reopen them. So during the pandemic, not only were parents listening to the Zoom lessons from teachers telling their white children that they were all oppressors and complicit in whiteness, but at the same time, the parents are going, when are you going to reopen the schools? What's the plan? What's the plan? And the response was, well, we're very interested in stopping the naming of this school being Thomas Jefferson and changing it to something more politically correct. That enraged people because it's like, wait, you can meet and talk for endless hours about that, but you can't figure out how to get my kid back in the classroom. It frustrated people. And it happened all over the country. It happened in San Francisco. It happened in Virginia. It happened all around the country over the last year and a half. And this, this then, Abe, let me, let me ask you this, because as the, as the, yes, this is a revolution author. One thing that has been missing from the COVID period and the analysis of the COVID period is the extent to which it has been a joy and a pleasure for people, for a lot of people uh, who have been taking lubricious pleasure uh, in the political shifts that have gone on while pretending to be so concerned and worried and terrified and all of that. Teachers got a year-long vacation from having to commute and, you know, didn't send work and didn't, uh, didn't conduct Zoom classes and sat at home and ate bonbons. And uh, liberals got to, got to basically create an entire universe in which they got to fulfill their fantasy dreams. You know, it's like, 
It's like uh, in, in some weird uh, right wing universe, it would be like replacing the the you know the Star Spangled Banner with a Lee Greenwood song, or you know, or Let's Go Brandon. Um, th- this is some version of of that for them, and they they walk around pretending to be so terrified and worried, and they're worried about their health, and they're worried about and all of this, and that's bullshit. They've been having the best time. They've been running the table with their issues without any public without any public involvement which is why permanent covid they'll they'll you know they'll they'll you'll have to tear it from their cold dead hands i mean you know for uh, for as long as we are on some version of an emergency footing um you can create a new reality and and they love the new reality and i think the average everyday americans were okay with the old reality but this is what tearing from your cold dead hands looks like, right? This is oh, yeah. what you've been saying would have to happen. The the, the um the calls, the, the, you know, the, the fact that uh, white supremacy is now trending on on Twitter, this is a death rattle for the cause. <laughs> but it's a it's going to be a long, slow, ugly death rattle. John, I don't know what you're about to transition to, but can we talk about the fate of the Build Back Better legislation? Yeah, we should, but let me. Let, we, we we must do that. But let let me uh, let me sure. let me talk to you guys about ExpressVPN, um, because look, ExpressVPN is one of the ways in which you can protect yourself from hackers, from uh, from being spied on, uh, from being you know having your Having your personal information used against you, sold, uh, and um, uh, you know, to, to to data miners everywhere. Um, every time you connect to an unencrypted network in cafes, hotels, airports, your online data is not secured. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data. And what's more, uh, if you if you go online uh, using even a Google, you know, an incognito browser on Chrome, uh, tech companies can harvest your data and sell it to somebody else. It doesn't take much technical knowledge to be hacked, and your data is valuable. As I said, hackers can take it, and companies can take it and use it at, at will. So that's why you should use ExpressVPN it creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. Hackers can't steal your sensitive data and you are much more invisible to the data miners and the data sellers than you would be otherwise. It's super secure. A hacker with a supercomputer it would take him over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. It's easy to use. You fire up your app, click one button to get protected, and it works on all devices, phones, laptops, tablets, and more. Secure your online data today. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash commentary. And you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash commentary. Build Back Better, which is the big social infrastructure, the big social spending bill, and the hard infrastructure bill. Oh boy. Wow. <laughs> well, two, two two scenarios, right? Quickly. I'm just sure. gonna do this really quickly. One. You look at this if you're Biden and the Democrats and say we gotta we gotta just put something down and get it passed so we can say we did something good and move on from this because obviously uh, this is a disaster. Or uh, you say we need to do this uh, because we're 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 dead we're dead in the water and we have to pass whatever we can pass before we're killed outright uh, in the next year. 
Or you're like, we need a longer term strategy here. So we got to drop the big bill and pass the small bill and force the progressives to the table and say, you're dead and we're dead and everything is toast. Do this so we can build on that. We can say we passed this bill, this bipartisan bill. We're now we got we got shellacked. We are we we're learning our lesson. We're not going to wait till 2022 to learn our lesson. We're going to learn our lesson now and see if we can shift gears and run more responsibly. Okay, Noah. <clears throat> yeah. So they've been retailing this narrative for a while and they've worked themselves up into it. So now they're they're deploying it. The idea that the only reason why this happened is because they weren't progressive enough. They weren't activist enough. They didn't change the social compact fast enough. Um, I don't think that holds, and it doesn't have to hold. It doesn't matter if the narrative holds. I know I've been Pollyanna-ish about this for a long time, uh, and I don't want to be too you know, optimistic, but I don't see how this how the social legislation goes forward at all. Um, Joe Manchin is looking at what happened across his, the border and saying, I'm not going to do this. Josh Gothheimer, who's one of the lead negotiators on this thing, represents Northwest New Jersey. That was a 17-point flip. How does he how does he do this? How does he say oh, he has to resign himself to losing? A lot of members have to resign themselves to losing in favor of a bill that nobody knows what's in it that doesn't exist. That that the chief uh you know selling point is how much it spends, which voters don't like. How do they do this? How do they commit suicide? I I I I think the self-preservation instinct kicks in here. They also right now don't really like the leader of their party. If you if there's there's been some interesting internal polling of Democrats, elected Democrats, and what they think of Biden and how he's doing, and it's not a very positive response. So you if you had a leader who was really galvanizing and had proven himself to have some competence in getting people to the negotiating table, rather than kind of cosplaying getting people to the negotiating table and then undermining what he had just done by saying the opposite to the press, maybe you could rally them. But he doesn't seem to have that skill any longer either. The same people who are saying we need to do more are also saying, why don't voters appreciate what we've done, right? We passed $2 trillion in this you know, Congress. And like half a year ago, they passed a $2 trillion relief package that wrote everybody checks. And they're saying, why don't people appreciate what we've done? These two incompatible narratives are not going to coexist. One has to win out over the other. And the realistic, logical one, presumably, will have more staying power. Okay, so... Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema could today say we are not voting for a, a social infrastructure bill. The people have spoken. We hear the message of this election. Barack Obama in 2010 said that this was a shellacking. Bill Clinton said after 94 that he had learned his lesson. We're going to do this for the party. We're going to kill this bill because no one else is going to do it. Uh, Monday, Kirsten Cinema agreed to, you know, um, said, this is wonderful. They're putting back a Medicare, uh, you know, a, a drug pricing element back in the bill. So she liked that. That was good for her. And she likes the corporate tax or whatever. But literally today, uh, it's now every man for himself in a weird way. Neither one of them is, uh, you know, neither one of them is up uh, for election in 2022, by the way, which is why why this is so funny talking about, like, Christine yesterday sent this thing from Jacobin Magazine. You know, we give us money so we can primary uh, Kirsten Cinema. Like, this is, she's not up till 2024, you morons. You know who's up? Mark Kelly. Her colleague, her Democratic colleague, Senator from Arizona, 
And if Arizona Republicans, and this is a big if because they're crazy and they're, 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 they're psychotic, if they should nominate somebody more like a Yunkin than a Trump, Kelly is a dead man. Now, if they nominate, you know, a lunatic who says that uh, says that there's a bioluminescent drug inside the vaccine that that say, lets you uh, be visible to Satan, then you know, then then Kelly can win. But um, Dave Wasserman of uh, of uh, the Cook Political Report said last night that these results are all totally analogous <laughs> with a Democratic slaughter next year. And I'll give you an example in the Senate, right? It's a 50-50 Senate. Uh, you look at these results. Uh, Christopher Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, has been sort of wondering whether or not he should run for Senate uh, against Maggie Hassan. He's going to run for Senate against Maggie Hassan. And that seat is flipped. That's it. She's gone. She's toast. She won by half a percentage point last time. She's a dead person. So uh, that's one. And then Mark Kelly could go. That's two. And God only knows who could go. Uh, and the, the Republicans can end up with 55 seats in the Senate. And the House, I don't even want to think about the House. We don't even know about the House. But what you can say is that the 25 remaining seats from 2018 that didn't flip back to the, Dem- uh, to the Republicans in 2020, out of the 40 that flipped in 2018, goodbye to almost all of them. Um, so Manchin and Cinema have some reason to say we better reset the table really fast or we're going to be in a permanent minority here. And that's not fun. Even if you're mansion and you're, you know, you're from a Trump state, like you don't want to be that person. Can, can I also add to the point to, to the issue of Trump here, right? Because the Republicans now also need to start thinking about the way forward for their party, because Youngkin just showed them a path, a path of a guy who didn't outright He's not a never Trumper, but he really kept his distance from Trump throughout. McAuliffe made the race about Trump and lost it. There is a there is a really important lesson in some ways more important for Republicans to learn than Democrats from that Virginia election. And it, I'm not 100 percent confident that they're going to learn the right lesson, but they need candidates like that. They need candidates who can carve their own path and talk about what is of concern to their constituents at the local level and the state level. And that, and not about, as you say, John, bioluminescent anti-vax nonsense or QAnon stuff. So I, I do feel like the Republican Party should enjoy its, its it, you can gloat for 24 hours and then you got to get down to the work of finding those candidates and making sure that the party is supporting them, if that's that, what they want to see. That applies to Jack Chitterelli too, uh, entirely. He, in the primary, the primary was a race between him and two other figures who were vying to be extremely Trumpy. And Jack was the least Trumpy candidate. He was also a very establishmentarian figure, longtime politician, member of the assembly. Nobody knew who he was because Republicans in the state are irrelevant legislatively. Um, but he was nevertheless a, a very conventional politician who was trying to be just a generic Republican that you wouldn't feel bad voting for. Because he wasn't, he didn't have, you know, he didn't have a, a big personality. He wasn't trying to create a movement. He wasn't trying to reorient American political culture. He was just a default option for you to register your dissatisfaction with Democrats. Okay, can I can I do some liberal tear drinking and, and, and have enjoyment um, in this way? So uh, here we have hard evidence. McAuliffe's sole campaign issue, pretty much, was Yunkin as Trump. And as I say in a column in the New York Post today, 
This was a bank shot. If you actually think about it, it was a weird strategy. Saying that somebody is like somebody else, and therefore you should vote against him because he's like somebody else, is not a clean shot. It's not like a good billiard shot where you have the ball, you have the pocket, you have the you have the cue ball, and you hit the ball and it goes into the pocket. It's a bank shot. you got to do two different things in order to get it into the pocket, and your odds of succeeding at that are very low. And McAuliffe is not dumb, so he took a bank shot. Why? Because what was he going to run on? What was he going to run on? That's the Biden, that's the horror for Democrats with Biden. In the first major race in a state that Biden won by 10, McAuliffe didn't have anything to run on. Uh, I'm going to read a quote from, um, uh, I think this is the Washington Post, but um, Dan Cena a Democratic strategist who helped the party win the House in 2018. Quote, the Democrats need to take a serious look at how we chose to engage with the Trump narrative. This was an election where the Democrats did not lean into their accomplishments, either in Virginia or nationally. And as we look to 2022, we're going to have to ask some hard questions. What accomplishments? What are the accomplishments that Terry McAuliffe or Phil Murphy, who was actually, you know, incumbent, so he really should have had accomplishments of his own in his own state. What accomplishments did they have to run on? That's the horror. So then Rick Wilson, the Lincoln Project Wiley Coyote super genius, says McAuliffe didn't run against Trump enough. And Democrats have to run against Trump even more in 2022. So his advice and the yes, Democrats do that. Take that advice. Yeah. <laughs> we just saw a test case in what happens if 2022 is run even in proximity to Trump. It's not going to work. Now it'll work exactly. It could. The only places where it'll work would be if Virginia had come out a different way and had had a Trumpy nominee that was, it was, you could tag as Trump's kind of surrogate. But where that's going to happen almost exclusively are going to be in states that the Republicans are going to win anyway, right? I mean, that it stands to reason that, you know, in Alabama, uh, the Senate race in Alabama or whatever, that people are going to hew closely to Trump. And then you could sort of say, well, He's like Trump, and then the voters are going to be like, "That's fine with me. I, I like Trump." Uh, it's only in it's only in places that are like swingy or might be swingy. If 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 Virginia's swingy, like Colorado, might be a little swingy. Nevada might I don't be know. A again. Swingy. I feel like we're all overthinking this. Donald okay. Trump isn't on the ballot, right? The end. <laughs> no, that's the beginning, middle, and end of it. Right, Easy but that's why I said it's a bank Voters shot. don't feel this kind of anxiety that you're trying to gin up on them about this hypothetical threat. It, you have to really think yourself into into that idea for it to make any sense. Well, but in 2018, well, here's the thing. So in 2018, Trump wasn't on the ballot, but he was the president. He was the leader of the party. So you could vote against him. So the only way to make this case next year is to say Trump is the leader of the Republican Party and will be the nominee and, you know, Aren't you scared? But I'm agreeing with you. This is a dumb strategy. But they don't have much else. God help Biden us. Biden has they screwed up the economy. He's screwing Trump up foreign the, policy. The political fray. Yeah, I mean, if look, if it didn't work now, it's it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna be an even weaker case to make 
you know, in another year. That that's that's completely preposterous. Well, I mean, it's only going to be weaker. I mean, uh, that's my point is that Yunkin and Chitterelli kept Trump at an arm's length. I just want to add to Christine's point about what Republicans should be thinking about now and talking about. Um, how about them taking from this that uh, all elections aren't fraudulent? That's a very important point. And uh, Chris Starwell wrote a piece for us. Not only aren't all elections fraudulent, but there is a delusion among really cynical Republican operatives that high turnout hurts Republicans. It has been an axiom of this conviction really for like many, many decades that, uh, in fact, if voters had their way, they would pretty much vote for Democrats. So you have to suppress their vote and keep turnout low and then engage Republicans and well-to-do Republicans who tend to turn out will, you know, can, can prevail. This was a huge high turnout election, the largest gubernatorial turnout election in Virginia's history by, by, by a law, large measure. So much so that McAuliffe, in losing, got hundreds of thousands of more votes this time than he did winning when he won the governorship in 2013. Um, so high turnout is not harmful to Republicans, and they have to stop believing this. Trump believed this so much that he walked around saying Republicans shouldn't vote early because no one should vote early because voting early is going to kill me. Again, you have to wonder, what if Trump, instead of being an insane lunatic idiot, had said Republicans go to the polls and like do, do, turn out early in, and, and do this in Georgia and, you know, in November and December, and we wouldn't have been in this insane situation with the Senate uh, having gone 50-50 Democratic because Trump interfered in the uh, runoff to the Republican you know, detriment and to the detriment of, of the country, really. But what does he care? You know, what he wants is to see people storming the Capitol and smashing windows and and then saying that they're martyrs. What I'm saying is he's bad news. And if you come back to me and tell me that he's not, I'm going to tell you again that he's bad news and he's bad news. And we now have a path beyond him that has been set by voters in two very, very, very different states. And if Republicans and conservatives don't heed and, and hear those messages, they will deserve to lose in 2024. Well, and it does look, it lifts the fear that I think has been hanging over some Republicans that they have to keep bending the knee to Trump. This shows, no, you don't. No, you don't. And turnout, you know, as you say, turnout benefited Republicans this time. That's good. So like change your, change how your ship is steering itself. Yeah. You can also say, look, I honor, you could even say, you know, I honor Trump's service. You know, the years 2016 to 2020, 2017 to 2020 were better than the years that have followed. Or better than the year or two that have followed, and uh, and he deserves some credit for that. And I would like to build on some of the successes that we saw from that period. But he is too divisive a figure, and I'm not him. Or you don't even have to say that I'm not him. I have my own way of doing things. I like to build consensus. I want to be nice. I like teachers. I don't hate people. Or just you ignore know. him, like Youngkin did, and yeah. focus on the parents and say, right. "You guys are the ones I'm whose whose attention I want to make sure I have." Yeah. Right, <laughs> guys. Now that you can relax a little, maybe you know it's really those of us who pay a lot of attention to politics. We get tense, you know, our muscles freeze up, we get bad backs, we feel bad in our knees, and all of that. That's why I want to talk to you about the X chair. Um, you know, 
I got a chair here that can give me a massage while I'm working and getting tense over politics. I got a chair here that can heat up or cool down so it makes me it makes me feel all cozy. Uh, how does that work? It's LMX massage and temperature regulation exclusively designed and made for X-Chair. And once you feel the customized support of X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair. Again, high performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. These are all reasons to love the X-Chair. So try it for yourself risk-free for 30 days. You'll never go back, I promise. Go to xchaircommentary.com. Now that's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. xchaircommentary.com All right, so yeah, I I had one other thing I wanted to quote and I have to find it here if I I can. Okay, um, another quote from, you know, the analysis of what happened last night in the mainstream media. This is from the New York Times, quote, Democratic officials and strategists said that to counteract, oh, wow, weird, uh, to counteract what unfolded in Virginia, strong anti-democratic and anti-Biden energy driving a conservative base and suburban independents to vote Republican, the party needs to significantly improve its economic pitch Engage with young voters, voters of color and women under 50 far earlier and more aggressively than they have this year, and renew efforts to recruit a more diverse slate of candidates. Once again, please, by all means, follow this strategy, you lunatics. Here's what happened. You just lost the white working class. You know what is the largest group of people in the United States? The white working class and the lower middle or white working to lower middle classes. That's the largest number of people. You know who aren't large in number? Diverse people. Diverse people are, are by definition, if they're minorities, they're minorities. So by all means, double down on the strategy where you are uh, balkanizing the country, making explicit racial appeals and not trying to appeal to the greatest number. This is demographic David Shore toxicity, right? This is de- what David Shore has ta- was talking about, which is Democrats should run on popular things and not run on unpopular things. Democrats shouldn't run against parents. That's stupid. Democrats should run on popular things. You know what appears to be unpopular? Diversity for the sake of diversity appears to be unpopular, But Democrats, I don't think, have a way out of this logic because they can't address it head on to say, this is not how we do things in the United States. We're going to go for the best candidates, not for the blackest candidates or not for the most Hispanic of candidates. We're going for candidates who can talk, who can, you know, reach out, who can appeal to more people. That's what we do in order to win elections. The Democrats and the Biden administration, certainly, they're in, they are in a real jam now because for them to heed the message of last night generally is to first really go to war within their own party um, uh, against the progressives. And that, and that is now and, – and that would then be a sort of new narrative about the dysfunction in, in, in their party. Well, and there's, even there's no more- clean way for them to turn this around. 
And even more than that, they will have to go to war with the ideology that has captured their the certainly the progressive wing and some of the mainstream wing of the Democratic Party. They don't have anyone like Bill Clinton who said end welfare as we know it. They don't have anyone who'll stand up and say end racial essentialism as it's being taught in schools. No one can say that on their side and actually be hurt without but being the whole, tarred and feathered as a racist. And the whole reason why that ideology has captured this party is because they've abandoned FDR's coalition. They, they're no longer a coalition party that includes lower middle class, working class voters. In fact, they kind of look down on them and don't like them very much. Right. And that, that was the moderating influence on the party. That's what made them. A, that's what progressivism used to mean, the redistribution of economic goods. And now it includes the redistribution of social goods. And there's nobody to speak against that within their coalition. But I do want to point out that Joe Biden won the nomination by not being a progressive, that he is governed as a progressive, will be viewed as one of the most astounding, self-inflicted errors in American political history. He turned his back on his own victory and its own meaning out of a delusional fantasy that he could be a transformational president. And you know why? Because he is a blithering idiot. And that is why he is not going to be able to shift gears. And that is why I don't think we're going to see any big changes. And that is why we're seeing a slow motion roll to democratic disaster uh, that will accelerate. I mean, there's going to be a pause now because there are no elections for a while. Um, Although, you know, you don't know 10 democratic moderates could resign the house to get lobbying jobs or something. They could do it now. They have to wait a year or something. So they might want to quit now. And then there could be races in those places. And we could see specials throughout 2022 that are just going to knock the stuffing out of Democrats one after the other, after the other, after the other. That's that's a possibility. But um, uh, basically, he's a dummy and he's behaved like a dummy and he's done things uh, politically like a dummy. And so. I don't think a 78-year-old dummy turns into a 78-year-old wise man. He ran a brilliant campaign, and then he turned his back on his own message. That was, uh, as I, again, Abe, let's, let's, let's let you have the last word on your, your, your rejection of my, char- of my, uh, my characterization. Oh, that he's a fool and, yeah. not, and, and not yeah. a dummy? Yes. Um, well, I don't, I don't know how else to say it. I, think he, I, I don't think he's a dummy. Um, okay. he, he just doesn't strike me as well. I, he's, I, I disagree with, I think he has a lot of dumb ideas. He's not, he doesn't strike me as particularly stupid. He's foolish because he, got, he bought into a romanticized notion of what he could be. Um, and that is the sort of classic definition of a fool to be sort of seduced by flattery, uh, and ego. And, uh, this is where it's gotten him. I'm just reminded of the end of Trading Places when when uh, uh, Eddie Murphy and uh, Dan Aykroyd and Dan O'Malley are on the beach and they're discussing what to have for lunch as they now you know are living this grand life, um, having succeeded in destroying the Dukes and getting their huge commodity fortune. And it's like, should we have the cracked crab or the lobster? And uh, and Dan O'Malley's girlfriend says, "Can't we have both?" So can't he be a dummy and and a and a fool? Can't we have both? I mean, it's look, it's it's a very exhausting position to be in to, to to defend Biden's intelligence to some to some degree here. Yeah, yes, he he can be, he can be both. Um, but you know, one thing that's interesting, I got to say, is like 
there, there have been all these attempts by the press in the past, you know, well, since the start of the presidency, but certainly in the past few weeks to sort of say, after a rough road, after a rough Afghanistan, after a, uh, there's a new energy and, you know, Biden's uh, re-energized by his trip abroad and some, you know, good contacts there and some good meetings. And it's like, there's, there's nowhere left to go uh, in trying to pump up uh, the state of this presidency. I mean, I, you know, from a PR standpoint, uh, if, if it doesn't, if it's not generated by him actually doing something different, uh, those efforts simply have to be exhausted. There's no, there's nothing else you can possibly say to pretend that that anything is going anywhere remotely well. Look, Bill Clinton radically shifted gears after after this de- defeat in 1994. Um, as as I mentioned before, Biden has the harbinger of the horror that is probably awaiting Democrats um, a year from now, and could shift gears. You know, the difference between Bill Clinton and 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 Joe Biden is that. Um, uh, Bill Clinton was good at politics uh, and good at electoral politics, and Biden is from a state with 12 people in it um, that basically just kept kept electing him. And uh, Bill Clinton was 44, 45 years old, and Biden is 378. So, um, so you know, his, his, his capacity uh, to uh, shift field and improvise and scramble uh, is, um, is, is probably uh, severely limited. And with that, we will uh, join you tomorrow uh, for A. Christina Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.